study your word this morning. Holy Spirit, teach us. You're our ultimate teacher. God, if there's anything that, um, that we need to be convicted about and we need to change, Holy Spirit, do that change in us. Oh, God, your word is true. Your word is precious. And God, what would life be without your word? And God, I pray this morning, oh, Lord, that you will hide your servant behind the cross and they will only hear and see Christ. Father, I pray that this morning, God, you give us listening hearts, that we may honor you, God, with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. Let's take a quick poll here. Just uh, how many of you hate exercise? Hate exercise. See, my, my hands is up. If your hands are, are up, you are lying. <laughs> All right. How many guys hate exercise? I hate it. And don't feel bad. I, I, I hate it. People hate it. And I know people who are really into it, though. I, I, they love to lift weights. They love to run. They love to work up a sweat. And they love being fit. I hate all of it. And I know I'm not alone at this. I don't really go to the gym. How many guys who are with me do not like going to the gym? Have you ever seen someone, hey, where are you going? To the gym. They're not happy about going to the gym, right? No one's happy. And people, they are not happy. Right? You see people like working out. Oh, there's no happiness in it. And, and, but I do miss it. And if you have a choice between this place called LA Fitness or Golden Corral, which one would you pick? Alright, how about this? The next one. How about this? If you would choose to exercise or to have a buffet. <laughs> it's an easy choice, right? Very, very easy. Um, but the Bible tells us that my, our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. We are not disembodied spirit. It's our job to keep this body that is in us as good a shape as possible for as long as we can. It also tells us in First Timothy 4, for while bodily training is of some value, it doesn't say that it has no value at all. We do not make it our goal to work out and to look like Lem. Uh, many of us do, I do. Uh, and if only I could pay him so I could look like him, I would do it. But I can't. <laughs> but we definitely can't neglect it. Right now I've been... Really working hard on doing crunches. I'm up to a hundred crunches a day. <laughs> Pretty good, right? And I'm sure you can tell, you can't tell. <laughs> Except it's not that kind of crunches. It's called Nestle Crunch. <laughs> I really like Nestle Crunch. In the U.S., there's 30,000 health clubs, gyms along with 273,500 personal trainers to go around. How many people do you think in the U.S. are working out at this gym? 58 million of us go to the gym and work out. It's a lucrative business. In the U.S. alone, gym membership's revenue is $27 billion. 
worldwide, that is 75.7 billion are taken in by these people like us who pay the money to go to get hurt. Right? How many of you guys have ever met someone, you took someone to the gym and you said, hey, work out with me. And after the day's over, I'll never work out with you again. I'll never come back to this place. Right? And, and also, did you know that 80% of these people who join a gym will quit after five months? They have good intentions, absolutely. Around January, uh, people join the gym and, and make their news resolution. I'm going to hit it. I'm going to do it. Now, John and I make that resolution every year, right, John? Right? We're going to hit it, John. Right? This, this is the year. And, and they're good for January to March. But come April, man, peace out. <laughs> quit. Why do 8% of these people quit working out? Easy. Because it's hard. It hurts to do that. Not easy. One jokester said, first workout at the gym was great. I did 15 minutes of cardio, 10 minutes in the, on the defibrillator, and then three days in the hospital. <laughs> or you might just have heard the old joke, when I feel the urge to exercise, I lie down until the feeling passes. I do that a lot. Uh, we are in our series, Choose Choosing joy. The book of Philippians is the guideline to a joyful life. Um, in chapter 2, uh, last week we started that there's joy in serving Christ and in unity. It starts with the right attitude. Uh, maintained through the right theology and, and encouraged by the right models. In chapter 1, verse 27 to 30, Paul encouraged the Philippians to live a gospel-centered lives. In the community, which would manifest in humble and harmonious relationship in the church. In chapter two, the apostle tells us that in order to do that, they would need to, to have that mindset of Christ, which was the paradigm of a willing and an obedient and a humble submission to God's purposes. His self-emptying at the cross was not just painful, but the pain of laying aside his glory and and yet, how glorious it was after the resurrection, God gave him the glory, which is above every name. Based on this example, we can imitate Christ-like humility and obedience displayed for the glory of Christ and a witness to the world of a blessing to be in the body of Christ. Our first point this morning is Christ shines through us, or Christ shines through when, pe- when his people works hard. Paul starts on verse 12 by saying, therefore, Paul started this section um, in, in chapter 2, but how Christ can shine in our lives through hard work. He starts off with the word therefore, hosta in Greek. It's a, part, it's a particle which he used to draw a conclusion from the preceding statement in verse 5 to 8, referring back to the ultimate example that we have in Christ, whose perfect model of humility and submission and obedience to God leaves us. With this kind of life. In verse 5, eight, five through 8, he said, Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I love that. That we and I right now in this world who, who profess to be believers, who are in Christ, have actually the mind of Christ. Who, though in the form of God, did not account equality with God, and think to be grasped. 
But he emptied himself by taking the form of a what? Servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in the human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. 66 of the Bible, book of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is summarized into these four verses. That the whole Bible is about Christ from beginning to end. And it concludes that every knee should bow, that every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. In verse 12b, it says, My beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. The next phrase, my beloved, is he loves the church of Philippi. As you have always obeyed, because they have always obeyed. The apostle praising them in the Philippians for following Christ's instruction and his commandments while he was with them. But now also in his absence. So not only were they obeying Christ while he was there, but they continued to obey Christ while he was in prison. He tells them that to, their, to double their efforts. I love how he writes uh, Paul. I mean, when you read Paul's epistle, you always see a word of encouragement first. And then a word of commendation. A word of, of instruction. Uh, even to the Corinthians, he, he encouraged them first. And then he, commenced, and then he commands them to do what is right. This is such a good pattern for us who are discipling others or mentoring others that we need to encourage first and then exhort. So as we meet with our D groups and we follow this pattern of encouragement and exhortation and what a sweet practice it is and encouragement for us to apply those, those to our disciple. Encouragement and challenge. In verse 12, it says, work out your own salvation. Paul continues by issuing a command for them to work hard to show the results of their salvation, obeying God with this deep reverence and fear. This verse right for us, uh, what a, wonder, a wonderful starting point for understanding what we call in theology sanctification. That is the lifelong obedience of believers which leads up to growth in Christ's likeness. This is not uh, at all promoting work Base salvation because we can't earn our salvation. Ephesians 2 8 9 makes it very clear, but that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and not of our works. How many of you guys are glad with that? That we are saved by faith, by grace through faith. Right? And then he, goes, and then he says, we need to work out. What a huge difference. You see, Christ has done all the heavy lifting by his sovereign grace alone. Christ has done the work on the cross to bring us justification, meaning being right with God. See, there's two, there's, there's three things in the Christian life, right? There's justification that God has made us right with Him. We're no longer at war with God. Therefore, we have peace with God, Romans chapter 5. But it doesn't stop there at justification. Then it goes to sanctification, which is about living in the light of His gracious gift of salvation. And it doesn't stop there either. God said, I just don't justify you, made you right with me, but I want to sanctify you, I want to change you just like me. Then one day I will glorify you just like me. So when God saved us, he did not leave us entirely to our own power to live this life of obedience. And God's people say what? What would God's people say? Amen, right? Why? Because God said, I'm not going to leave you alone. To do this thing. How many guys here find obedience hard? Just find it a little bit difficult. How many guys here find it just maybe a tiny little difficulty in, in obedience, obeying Christ's command? How many guys here find it a little bit difficult? All right? 
Most of you guys don't raise your hand. Ah, oh, dude, what's your secret? <laughs> I just really need to know because I find it really, really hard. Every day I wake up, my, my biggest struggle in life is how do I obey Christ? Because my whole heart says, I want to disobey him. Because he's so much more fun that way. See, the call here is not to work toward or for, but to work it out. See, we aren't what we ought to be. Aren't you glad? Right? And then what we must be one day. Um, but by his grace, we are not what we used to be. Here it is. We must do our part in this sanctification. There's, yes, there is a part that we need to play. We can work out our salvation because God is at work within us. So what does it mean to work out your own salvation? It simply means to follow the example of Christ. In verse 5 to 8, this is my example. I empty myself. I humble myself. I make myself a form of a servant. That's what God says is what? That's how we work this out. In chapter 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Right? Put other people's interests first. Verse 5, having the mind of Christ. Right? He said, that's what we need to work out. See, he has shown us what humility looks like. What God-honoring obedience looks like. Right? And that's why he said in verse 3 and verse 4 and verse 6 and verse 8, he tells us, this is how we work things out. If we are to work out our salvation, it requires that we understand our example, Christ, so that we know what we are to be like. And to understand that we are loved. That nothing could ever separate us from the love of Christ. That we have the space to fail and be restored again. You know, that's so beautiful for me. Right? I know it's so hard, God, to work out this salvation. I, I struggle daily to work this out. Yet God says to me, I know you will struggle, but nothing will ever separate you from my love. I will always, always love you. Amen? That nothing could ever, what? Separate what? You. Meaning this, God will always, always, always love you. And then he goes on to say, I will leave room and space for you to fail. And then restore you again in grace. And to understand nonetheless that we are called to obedience. In 1 John 2, 6, he said, if we say we are his, we must what? Follow the example of Christ. My, my coach in high school saw, saw, me, saw me eating one morning Wheaties box. Because, you know, I saw the commercial, right? Michael Jordan, the Wheaties box. You know, if you eat your Wheaties, you'll be great. How many of you seen that commercial, right? Right? I missed that commercial, by the way. And then he asked me, and then he asked me to do, do you think that eating Wheaties will make you a, a, a good basketball player? He told me that I need more than Wheaties to become a, a, a good basketball player. I said, you do? Michael Jordan says, if you eat your Wheaties, you will be great. Right? That's what he says. But here's the fact. There's no shortcut to becoming healthy. It requires discipline and, and long workouts. Uh, I, I love, um, when I was going to the gym, um, I always give myself an hour, uh, maybe less than that, maybe like, you know, 54 minutes, good enough, right? So, so Lem, Lem's always there, and, and, and he always looks for me, always looks for me. Wherever I am, he looks for me. And then when our lock flies out, and I'm looking at my hour, I'm almost close. He goes like, 
looking at you. And I said, it's time. It's time. And he goes like this. He says, I don't know, Pastor. I think your watch is wrong. I said, no, my watch is right. Right? And so I miss, I miss our interaction there because he always looks at me. You know, so I always make sure that when he looks at me, I work harder. You know, just just to fake him out. <laughs> but but uh, afterward, after he looks around, he looks. He turns around. I said, "Oh, dude, thank you." <laughs> and, and, and I just want to tell you that there's no shortcut into the Christian life as well. There's there's no shortcut into healthy living. So so my question for us is: Is this the kind of life that we are living as believers? Are, are we praying? Are, are we trying to grow in humility, in personal holiness? Are we trying to be selfless and sacrificial? And by the power of God, we can. Many of us wish that we could find a shortcut, right? Some special diet to grow in the Christian likeness. But following in the footsteps of Christ requires daily denial of ourselves and, and taking up a cross. Before we move on, I, must, I want to point out one other thing. Many people tend to view verse 12 in a merely individual self, workout salvation. Yes, absolutely. But like many passages in the New Testament, we should not merely highlight the personal dimension of salvation, but also the corporate dimension of it. So when you look at the plural form of the verb, work out, and the pronoun your, it's a call for, for us as a church, a whole community, the church to restore harmony by loving and, and serving one another. And, and we are to do this with what? With fear and trembling. What does that mean? Fear and trembling. This implies that the Christian should live in an awe of God. It really has to do with living in humility before God in submission to His will. And, and But the one way to cure our selfish ambition and our vain conceit is by living with an awareness of His holy presence in our lives. It should put us in our place and compel us to live lives that is pleasing to Him. You know, when I live, when I have this awareness, uh, this morning I was walking in and... Uh, and God, I, I just want to fear you. And, and I just want to tremble at your word. And, and when, you know, sometimes many people have a hard time praying confession. You know, it's hard to confess our sins, right? Because there's so many, right? How many of you guys here find yourself like confession, like you go real fast, right? You go real fast, right? And this is our favorite way to confess. God, forgive me for all my sins, right? Right? And, and, yet God, and the Bible tells us, you know, you need to name it. Right? And how many of us have a hard time confessing? But when you and I have this mindset that we are, we are approaching a holy, holy God whose name is holy, who said, be perfect for I am perfect, it will change the way you confess your sins. Because we are approaching him and we are agreeing with him that this is sin. And that's how we come with fear and trembling. You know, in Proverbs chapter 9, it says the fear of God is, is, is the beginning of, of wisdom. So in the presence of our great, awesome God, Paul says, Look, I saw the pattern of obedience when I was there, and I want to see much more of it now that I'm not there. Work out your salvation. So the assumption here is that they need to do it on their own. Paul says, You don't need me. I love verse 13. Um, this verse gives me tremendous freedom, and I hope it gives you tremendous freedom as well as we work out this salvation. I want you to look at this. I love this. When Paul says, it is who? It is who? God. Right? It is God who what? Who works this out. Amen? Because if it's up to you, 
going to be very hard. Meaning he has already worked, and all that we can do is respond to what Jesus has done. And I love this. It is God who works in you and us. He didn't leave us just for me to work out the sanctification thing. This is an encouragement to us and to me because I don't have to work out in building his church. He will do it. We just need to do our part. And I need to be intentional about my own walk with Christ. And that's what Paul is saying. You need to be intentional about it. One of my favorite illustrations of this uh, cooperative partnership with, between God and man is the story of a farmer who was visited by his pastor. As the pastor surveyed the farm for the first time, he commented to this, this is a great farm you and God have. He said, thank you, but you should have seen it when God had it all by himself. He meant no disrespect by that. He was simply recognizing that the way God works through us is different. That he will do for us what we should be doing for ourselves. I really love that, that God is working in us to bring my salvation, our salvation to completion. I love verse 6, also chapter 1, where he says this promise, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you. I want to tell you now, God has begun a good work in you by making you right with him. That's how it began. He chose you. And he began that good work in making you right with him. And then he says, I will bring all of you who are in Christ into completion in the day of Christ. God doesn't say, I will justify you. And then God said, I will sanctify you. And then one day God said, I will glorify you. Paul here explains how Christian obedience actually works. That we're only able to work out this salvation in real obedience because God himself, through his indwelling spirit, who is at work in us. So as we submit ourselves into the Holy Spirit, he gives us both the desire and the power to accomplish his will. And he does this invisible work in us by grace. And and we simply do what he has commanded. See, you and I are able to do this. Absolutely. Absolutely we are able to work out this salvation because God is at work in who? In us. And he says in verse 13, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The apostle here uses two infinitives to describe what God does. To will and to do. Meaning the desire, the deed belongs to, to God alone, but the deed belongs to God. Let me ask you this. How many of you here desires to do good? Just desire. Have this motive to desire. To do good. How many guys here desires to obey God's command? You desire it, right? In your heart, you desire that, right? And but how many guys here find it really hard to do so? All right. And and yet God gives us this absolute promise that I know it's hard and I know it's difficult, but I'm going to work it out in you. Paul says, "I labored more abundantly than than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me." See, it was Paul. And the grace of God that he was able to do all this work. Do you get it yet? That, that, that apart from Christ, John fifteen five, we and I can absolutely do what? Nothing. I love how Abbe Meyer puts this. He says, apart from him, we can do nothing. While we are abiding in him, nothing is impossible. The one purpose of our life should be, therefore, to remain in living and intense union with Christ, guard against everything that would break it, and employ every means of cementing it and enlarging it. And just in proportion as we do so, we will find his strength flowing like, in, like into us for every possible emergency. Love that quote. 
You see, God may be working in you to confess to that fellow Christian that you were unkind in your speech or act. Work it out. God may be working in you to give up the life of business about which you have been doubtful lately. Give it up. He may be working in you to be, a, to be sweeter in your home and gentler in your speech. Start. God may be working in you to alter your relation with some with whom you have dealings with uh, and, and alter them and do we do all these things for his good pleasure. They're the things that pleases him. This very day, let God begin to speak and work and will and then work out what he works in. And I want you to get this. God will not work apart from you, but he wants to work through you. I'm going to repeat that again. God will not work apart from you, but he wants to work through you. We are partners with God. I live in this hope that God is working for change in my life as I yield control to his will. Would you let him? Would you yield to him and, and let this be the day when you and I will begin to live in the power of the mighty indwelling spirit of God that lives inside of us? Number two, Christ shines through when his people stop complaining and being judgmental. Will you say this with me? Do all things. Okay, I'm going to say that again. Do all things without complaining. How many of you say, did God really say that? Let's be honest. How many of you here holds a PhD in complaining? How many of you here has an honorary degree in complaining? At least a master's. How many of you guys here at least have a master's in complaining? Right? Some people have double PhDs in complaining. In this section, Paul tells us what it looks like to work out our salvation practically. The second thing Paul issues here is an imperative command here that we are going to shine as light for Christ if we, if we stop complaining. The word Paul uses for grumbling or uh, gorgusmos is, is an onomatopoeia word that sounds like a person mumbling complains under their breath. It expresses itself in whispers of complaining against someone. How many of you guys have done that? You don't complain so verbally, but you do it like under your lip. Like Popeye. Remember Popeye? Every time Brutus does something, <laughs> Right? He did all that stuff. And, and all throughout Jesus' ministry, he, he dealt with this a lot of complainers, didn't he? Like those in Matthew 20 and who grumbled at the landowner for being paid the same as those who had worked only for one hour. How about in Luke 5.30, he dealt with the scribes and the Pharisees who began grumbling because he ate and drank with tax collectors and sinners. So Paul uses this, this term in, in the Philippians, um, uh, saying the same thing in 1 Corinthians, actually, verse 10, chapter 10, verse 10, to describe the Israelites in the wilderness who grumbled and were destroyed by the destroyer. You know what God does with complainers? He destroys them. That's what he does. He tells them to consider this sad example and do the opposite. Robert Travis, Dr. Robert Travis, co-director of the marital health studies at the University of Alabama, lists uh, the most common complaints of husband and wives. Okay, uh, If you are here married, you just say amen if you want to. Okay, I'll start with wives. Okay, Got it. Okay. Wives, he doesn't listen to me. 
I see pretty quiet here. (laughs) That's pretty good. How about this? He takes me for granted. Oh, (laughs) I'm going to do that again. He doesn't listen to me. (laughs) Uh, He takes me for granted. Uh, How about this? He's not romantic. Okay. (laughs) He doesn't help me much with the children. Okay, husbands, you guys, your turn, your turn. Don't worry. We're, we're, we, we, we like equality here. <laughs> she doesn't understand that I need time by myself. Whew. Men, good job. <laughs> Don't say anything. This is the portion you say nothing. Okay, sip it up. Or you will not be sleeping somewhere tonight. (laughs) Okay. Um, She nags about these little things. She expects too much emotionally. Uh, This one. She complains that I spent too much time at work. Good job, man. Woo! When we look at the story of the children of Israel in Exodus and throughout the Old Testament, the people of God often seem sort of whiny, aren't they? There's a lot of grumbling. There's a lot of complaining. And I think most parents can relate to what it's like for God as a father to relate to the children of Israel. We need to find ourselves in that story. As well, because we have a lot of complaints about life, a lot of areas of discontent. We tend to grumble about small and insignificant things. And one of the things that's important for us is, is for us to ask, is why do I grumble and complain about this? Usually it's because I have some idol that I have set up as something that is very important to me. My own schedule, my own time. And then things that make my life better for me. Then then something gets in the way of what makes my life better for me. I'm very quick to complain about it. It's really, really important for us to recognize that all of our complaining is ultimately directed against God. Whether we mention Him specifically in our complaints or not, all of our complaining goes to Him. He is the great God. He is the one who exercises sovereignty over whatever happens in our lives. So all of our complaints go right to the top. And that shows what a great sin complaining really is. It's an all-out attack on the goodness of God. This morning as I was walking, I was listening to God is so good. God is so good to me. God, you are so good. God, you're so good. You're so good to me. You know, every other week, um, in a couple of days, I'll, I'll have the fourth round of chemo, and um, I'm always fearful leading up to it. And this morning, uh, I was so anxious, and I just needed to walk and, and be with God. And the first song that I listened to this morning is, God is so, so good to me. It's knowing that. It takes all my complaints away. It takes everything away from me. 
Because I know that whatever I'm going through, that God is going to work it out for his good, for my good and his glory. And I know that. Moses told them that their complaining was really an all-out attack on the goodness of God. When the Lord give, when in Exodus chapter 16, when uh, the Lord gives you in the evening meat and, and to eat and, and the morning bread to, to the full because the Lord has heard your grumbling and, and that, you, that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. See, the question is not, will you and I be tempted to complain? We do. You and I will be tempted to complain a lot. Since our common language of our culture is always bent to complain. Carol decided she wanted to do something nice for her neighbor, Miss, Mrs. Smith. So she baked a pie and carried it next door. When Mrs. Smith opened up the, her door, she was surprised to see her holding a pie. She replied, for me? Oh, thank you so much. You, you just don't know how much I appreciate it. You're so thoughtful for doing this. Thank you. Because Mrs. Smith liked the pie so much, Carol decided the next week to bake her another one. And when she took it over, Mrs. Smith opens the door and said, reply, thanks. She took another pie over the next week, and Mrs. Smith responded, you are a day late with that pie. <laughs> the following week, Carol baked her another pie. This time, her, Mrs. Smith said, try using a little bit more sugar and don't bake it quite as long. The crust has been a little bit hard lately, so watch it. And then, and, and by the way, I, I, hate, I don't like apple anymore. I like cherry instead of apple filling next time. The next week, she was so busy, she was unable to cook for Mrs. Smith. When Carol passed by her house on the way to the store, Mrs. Smith looked through the window and noticed she wasn't carrying a pie. She then stuck her head out of the window and yelled, Where's my pie? It's so easy to get used to our blessing. After enjoying them for a while, we begin to think we deserve them. Then instead of being thankful, we complain. It's a process that occurs so slowly, we don't even realize it's happening. Will you say this with me? I am so blessed. Will you say that with me? I am so blessed. Aren't we? Let me ask you, do we have enough? To be thankful for in life? Do you have enough? In verse 14, he says, Do all things without disputing or arguing. How many of you here not just holds a PhD in complaining, but PhD in arguing? How many of you guys have that? All right, double PhD, complaining and arguing. How many of you guys here loves to argue? Just love it. All right? Just loves to argue for the for for whatever reason. You just love to fight, right? Because you love to fight, right? And some people, wow. Next, Paul tells us to do without disputing or arguing. In Romans fourteen one, the word is used of passing judgment on another believer's opinion. In First Timothy two eight, he calls it dissension, whereas grumbling is the emotional part. Arguing is the intellectual part. So when a person who continues to murmur and grumble against God will eventually argue and dispute with you. Automatic. So Paul also tells us that we are to do this in all things, not some things. See, we don't get to keep any of complaints or any arguments. 
So when you pray tonight about this issue about complaining, please don't ask God, God, can I keep some? God says no. I said all things. It's such a temptation for us to complain, isn't it? And one reason is obvious. Christianity is difficult. Pursuing holiness, giving generously, practicing hospitality, loving one's spouse, kids correctly, sharing the gospel, and the others of the Christian life would, could tempt one to complain and murmur. Discipleship is an easy road. Sadly, we find a lot of examples of arguing in the wilderness narratives found in Exodus and Numbers. You just pause and go read this sometimes. They have turned complaining and arguing into an Olympic sport. See, not only do you hold PhD in complaining and, and arguing, but you're also an Olympic athlete at it, right? How do you know? You practice it often. And some of you practice it really hard, right? You work it out. I need to be a better complainer. I need to be a better arguer. Like, and you pump that muscle up, and then you wait for an opportunity. Oh, I got him right now. When we are tempted to complain and and argue, what will you do? Will you downplay the sin, or as often many do, or will you remember this verse? Maybe a better question for us is how we can maintain a joyful attitude in a world filled with complainers and arguers. Once again, we must go to the gospel for joy. You see, the gospel tells us that we are far better than we deserve. Aren't we? Aren't we far better than what we deserve? Right? And because Jesus lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died, and as we consider what we deserve and what we've been given, should really keep us from complaining and arguing. See, what I deserve is hell. That's what I deserve. I don't deserve heaven. I, I deserve God's judgment. I deserve God's wrath. And yet Jesus decided to live the life that I should have lived and died the death that I should have died. And we lose sight of the gospel. And like the Israelites, like the Israelites, did we, we will see go down to the same dark hole of murmuring and arguing, losing sight of the greater exodus found only in the death and the resurrection of Christ. John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, said, Suppose a man was going to New York, take a possession of a large estate, and his carriage had break down a mile before he got to the city, which obliged him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should think of him, wringing his hand and blubbering out all of remaining mile. My carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. And we must remember that we only have a mile to go. We will be home. Soon we will be with Christ. We don't deserve such gift, such an inheritance. So we have to walk a mile. We can do it. And we can do it with a song. If we're going to shine for Christ in this world, there must be a noticeable difference in our lifestyle. You know what Christians are known for in the world? Bunch of complainers. Unbelievers will murmur and complain and gripe. But we should not. In verse 15, he says that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. He gives two reasons why believers should stop complaining and arguing. First, he tells them that we should stop complaining for our own sakes. Second, that we may become kind children of God. He wants us to be blameless and innocent. That's what he says. And part of the process of being blameless and innocent is to stop complaining and arguing. So the word blameless means being without defect or, or, or blemish. 
Next, he uses the word innocent, which is the basic meaning of being unmixed or unadulterated. He demanded his disciples in Matthew 10, 16, to be as shrewd as snakes and harmless as doves. And we are to live absolutely pure, unmixed with sin and evil. So to sum it up, he used the word blemish, means to be above any legitimate blame or criticism of your life. You know what's the greatest accusation for Christians? That you are a bunch of hypocrites. Isn't it? Isn't that the greatest thing that people tell you? I don't want to be a Christian because I don't want to be like you. The Apostle Peter, after briefly describing the day of the Lord in 1 Peter 3, 10 and 11 and 14, it will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its work will be burned up. Then he asks his rhetorical question, what kind of people ought you to be? I'm asking you now, what kind of people ought you and I to be? You ought to live what? Holding godly lives, he says. Verse 14, so in, in then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. See, God said, I will give you all the resources. I will give you all the power because I'm the one who's going to work in you to will and to do. But you got to do your part. You have to make an effort to what? To be found spotless, blameless, and, and peace with him. Are you making that effort to be found spotless and blameless? So instead of them calling you a hypocrite, they will call you, I believe in your Christ. Because you live an unhypocritical life. See, all this Christian virtue is impossible. So next time people call you a hypocrite, just say yes. Not easy. Because you are. I am. Right? But here's the thing. I'm a work in progress. Are you? Aren't you glad God is not done with you yet? How many of you guys are glad God is not done with you yet? See, all this Christian virtue is impossible with our own power. It is only through the unblemished, spotless Christ and his Holy Spirit, who, according to Jude, is able to keep you and I, believers, from stumbling and to make us stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. It is God who will work this out in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Earlier in verse 13, Paul tells us that we are to do this for his good pleasure. Verse 15, also, we, we do this because in the midst of the quickened twisted generation among you shine as lights of the world. The second reason for not complaining or arguing is the negative impact he has on the unsaved, on the unbelievers, those who belong to a crooked and twisted generation. You see, complaining and arguing causes us to lose our distinctive character, or in the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, our saltiness. You are the salt of the earth, Jesus said, but what good is salt it has lost its flavor. Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled under the fo- underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under the basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, light, let your good deeds shine out for all to what? See, we don't live our Christian life in a private world. We live it in a public world. And here's the reason so that everyone will praise your Heavenly Father. Why is it worth it? Why is it worth it to live this kind of life? 
Because this is a life that gives God glory. When we what? When we become the salt of the earth and we become the light of the world. The only question here for me, for you this morning, is: are you the light of the world? Are you the salt of the earth? Or you have lost your flavor and you have lost your light. You see, in order for light to be effective, it has to be seen. And I want you to notice that he says, among you, whom you, me, you, shine as what? The lights in the world. We are the lights of the world. For you and I to be effective, we have to be around people who are in darkness. For the light to be noticeable and for it to work. If we all we do is shine among other people who are shining, we're not doing a lot of good. Oh, man, I, one thing I really miss is working in a, in, in a secular work. I really miss it. You know, I, I, I so long to be with people who does not know Christ. You know, I, I miss... I miss, I miss the golf course. I miss working at the golf course. I miss free golf. I, I miss free driving range. <laughs> I miss all of that. But well, you know what I miss the most is I miss having the freedom to hang out with unbelievers, to talk to them. You know, I, I remember having the shot and, and it, it went over the parking lot and, and thank God it didn't hit a car. Right? And and one of the guys was writing with me said, Hey, uh, I would have expected you to curse. And and you didn't. Why? I would have cursed. <laughs> I said, you know, that's not why I play golf. And and it's so useless for us just to hide our Christianity. So if we're here on Sunday morning worshiping God and we need that, it's great to be together. However, if this is the only place that we're shining, we're not doing the world any good. We sing songs like this little light of mine. I'm, I'm going to let it shine. That's cool and all, but we have to leave this place and go out. You can't stay here. You just can't stay here. Here's, here's uh, Greg's flashlight. And, and what if... I, I go out there right now and walk in the sun so I can see where I'm going. So if you see me doing that, what kind of names you will call me? Let me give you one. Lame. <laughs> right? Can you imagine? I, I do this great flashlight. Oh, I need to do this where I'm going. It's the sun is out. Why do I need a flashlight? Right? We, we don't need a flashlight to see where we're going because the sun is brighter than the flashlight. There's no need to do that. So that's what's like when Christians only shine around each other. We need to be in the darkness for the light to really be of value, for the light to really works. You see, there's no such a thing as a secret Christianity. Our lives have to be seen. And by the way, don't be obnoxious about this. And people are so obnoxious. I met a Christian, and, 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 and he did like this. He said, hey, man, uh, do you like hell? <laughs> because you're going there. That is so obnoxious, right? We don't need to do that. We could be winsome, we could be warm, we could be lovely, we could be polite, we could be sweet, we could agree to disagree. And here's another thing about light. It will show people the way out of darkness. You see, it doesn't just expose the darkness, Jesus said. He said, I'm the light of the world, but I want you to see the context. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And last time I checked, he left this world, ascended to heaven. He was here, he left and gave us his Holy Spirit. Then he turns to the disciple, you are the light of the world. 
So think of it as the sun and the moon. The moon reflects the sun. It shouldn't obscure it. It should reflect it. Don't block the sun. Don't eclipse it. Reflect it. Because that is the will of God for you. We need to realize that others are watching us and are listening to us. What are they seeing? What are they hearing? And let me ask you, you are standing out like bright stars in a dark sky. Don't complain. Argue with God. Obey him. Joyfully work out your salvation without complaining, without arguing. And the process of shining as lights, we become the greatest advertisement to the gospel. Ah, man, I wish I had more time. Um, but let me close with this. There was a man driving his car and a woman was driving behind him in another vehicle. They were at the stoplight when the light turned green. The man in the lead car did not look up. He was looking down, maybe texting, and he didn't go, and it's green. The lady in the car behind him saw that he was texting, so she let him know by honking her horn repeatedly. But the guy didn't budge, didn't move, didn't look up. So she honked again. She's now fuming at this time and rolled down her window, started yelling. Okay, am I touching some nerve here? Am I touching some nerve here? (laughs) Okay. And she started yelling. Just when the light turned yellow, before it turned red, this man zoomed through the intersection, leaving the woman to go through another light cycle. Well, now she's really mad. She steps out of her car and puts her arm out and gives a certain gesture. I don't need to go any further. And started yelling some very choice word. Again, I don't need to go any further. Ranting, raving, pounding the steering wheel and and her hood. And just then, she noticed a police officer with a gun pointed saying, Ma'am, I want to see both hands. The police puts her arms behind her, puts handcuffs, and takes her to jail. After two hours in the cell, the same officer lets her out and says, Ma'am, I'm very sorry for the misunderstanding, but I just want you to know that when I was listening to the words that were coming out of your mouth and the gestures that you were making and all the ranting and the raving that is going through you, I got very confused because I noticed that on the back of your car is a what would Jesus do bumper sticker. A chrome fish on your trunk. An all for Jesus license plate. So naturally, the officer said, I assume that you stole the car. (laughs) One more thing. Christ shines through us when his people live lives of sacrifice and joy. He says, even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. A fellow pastor asked me this question this week. Um, Once in a while, I think about it. Uh, What do you think would happen to Watermark if you left? Uh, 
I think I would say like Paul. My hope is that you abated my presence now much more in my absence as well. Because it's really immaterial, really, in a sense, because the pastor of Watermark Fellowship Church is Jesus, not me. I just get the privilege to serve her, the church. I know the time will inevitably come when I'm no longer in this place. But there's never a moment in our spiritual life when you are not responsible for your own progress. Because you have every resource to grow in Christ and mature in Christ without me. And that's why Paul would say, likewise, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Let me give you four things, um, especially if you're in a life group this week. I want you to discuss these four things in your life group. Let me just give it to you real quick. And my challenge for you this morning is, will you take this challenge, um, this word's offer? One, Jesus is Lord. Two, Jesus is worth it. Three, Jesus will bring to completion what he began. Lastly, Jesus and through Jesus, we're better than we deserve. This whole section of chapter 2 tells us that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is worth it. Jesus will bring to completion what he began. And Jesus and through Jesus, we're doing better than we deserve. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, God, at this moment, um, we want to just confess and repent, God, that we have a complaint of spirit out of a discontented heart. And that, God, that we love to argue We love to be right. We hate to be pointed out our wrongs. God, we just confess that before you. God, this morning, take out this fighting spirit in us. And God, replace it with a gentler, kind, loving, patient joyful spirit. God, forgive us of our hypocrisy that we've become such an offense to the gospel. God, the gospel is offensive because it requires for us to repent of our sins and and make Jesus our king. And yet, Lord, it's our lives that are offensive. Father, I I pray this morning, Lord, as we continue to praise you with songs that we reflect on this truth in us that we are stars meant to shine in this twisted and crooked generation in which we shine like the stars. Help them to see Jesus in us. 
God, at this moment of just silence before we sing a song, God, may you just work in us. Work in and through us. God, work out this salvation, God. Help us to do it with fear and, and with trembling. This moment, just have a 30-second just moment of silence before your maker and ask him to change you. <laughs>